Hey, one more thing before you go. Out of necessity after the pandemic started, because I didn't have access to therapy. So I just was flooded with these memories that were quite humorous about my mom. And that just spawned, sparked the book. I always had the idea for the book, but I never had the hook. I never had the, you know, how do I make this idea turn into a reality? And then it, it, it had many incarnations. It had many drafts. And, um, and it wasn't until the pandemic that I actually started sitting down and focusing in the hours that I could focus when I was sick because I got COVID right after mom passed. And um, so it was a... Um, Opportunity. Uh, yeah, it was an opportunity to, to be creative because I was always, I'm a creative person, but I was a movement specialist. I would specialize in dance and in theater and in aerial stuff and trapeze. So I, my body was my instrument my entire life. And here we were, you know, no one has a trapeze in their living room, so I can't coach you on, you know, on aerial mm -hmm. skills. Um, so, you know, when everything went remote, it was, well, what do I do now? That so I can get this creative outlet. Um, you know, everybody, you have to feed your creative person and, um, and they were starving. And so I had to find a way to feed them. And, and then, you know, as, as weird as it is, having my mom, uh, you know, pass right at the very beginning of the pandemic, it sort of was the catalyst that said it. And it's not one book, but two books that are actually going to be published in the next couple months. I'm just like I said, I'm in editing hell right now. It is, you know, because if you're not a writer, an editor or a chef, but you wrote a cookbook, you have to completely go back to school and relearn the the way you tell a story, the way you tell a the way you explain a recipe, the way you cut a recipe down for people to understand, you know, like if I used my grandmother's bolognese recipe, people would be would have to go out and buy whole new pots because my grandmother had a pot like this big and it sat on the stove for three days with a with a flame like a, a candle flame under it, yeah. and it slowly um, evaporated into this like red gold, you know. So mm -hmm. you you know, but I had to figure out what other people did and how do I tell my story and how do I make these recipes accessible to anybody, even people with dietary issues. So I really had, you know, I basically went to college in my living room uh, for the past nine months. So that's cool. That's very cool. That, that's the journey I want to tell. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what, that's what I want to get into. Let's get started. Absolutely. In this episode, we take a journey through one man's loss of his mother, three relatives and 17 friends to COVID-19. Working in the entertainment industry, both on and off Broadway in New York City in the middle of a pandemic. Surviving COVID himself and discovering a passion for documenting the life of his best friend, his hero, his mother. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Escape to Ravioli Mountain. My guest in this episode is Bobby Hedlund Taylor, trapeze artist. He's an actor, a dancer, a singer, an acrobat, an impressionist, an author, an officiant, an aerial sequence choreographer, and so much more. He's ultimately known as the multi-hyphenated artist. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Nice. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard it quite put that way, but I'll take it. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. it's a very unique... In fact, you probably are the only one that holds that title in the world. You should be honored. <laughs> well, it, it came up in a podcast recently. I was being interviewed and somebody was like, you're the multi-hyphenated artist. I'm going to use that. <laughs> you know, I'm taking that ball and running with it. Yeah. Um, you know, because, um, and, and this is another thing, any actor, any person who moved to New York City or even LA 
to be an actor, to be in the entertainment industry. You have to be multi-hyphenated if you don't have financial resources. And I didn't. I grew up in a very poor family. And when I moved here, I moved here with $35 in my pocket. And um, so it was like, I had to make it here or, you know, but you have to hustle and you have to know where to, how to survive. And I can't tell you, there, there are people that I know that work on Broadway on a regular basis who one is an actual book editor and she takes on three, four editing jobs a week while she's doing a Broadway show. And wow. since Broadway was shut down, she was able to maintain her income. She's got two kids. So she was a single mom, but she was able to maintain her income by, by, by editing different uh, documents and articles and things over the course of the pandemic. So you have to have, and I, and like, like one of the things that I did um, over the pandemic, yes, I'm an officiant. I legally officiated six weddings over Zoom and some in person with masks and social distancing here in the city and some in one in Portland, New York via Zoom. Um, so it's like I, you have to have multi hyphenated, uh, tasks to help you maintain a living if you don't come from a place of financial resource. That's, um, that, you know, and the, especially, like I said, in the entertainment industry, my kids are in the entertainment industry, two of them, actually, um, in L.A., which is obviously different from New York. But, you know, the whole entertainment industry shut down there, too. And they had to kind of reinvent themselves for the time period while it was shut down because of that. And then evolved back into a pandemic style. Mm-hmm. You know, integration within. So they started working again, but it was all so complicated. They had to be yeah. COVID tested and, and you know, uh, uh, transported separately. And um, at one point, they both, although they're married, they both had to be picked up in separate Ubers, taken to a hotel. Then they had to be COVID tested. And then they couldn't leave the hotel. Their food was brought to them. It's almost like a mini spa vacation, I guess. Mm. Right, as food brought to them, and then <laughs> yeah. When they were clear, then they had to come back down and then transported to the set. And then once that was done, they were sequestered in a in a in a separate green room and then transported back to the hotel. Same thing, and then everything done all over again for the next day. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah I had to do that uh, um, last fall. I worked on two um, two productions. One was a commercial and one was, uh, a play that was broadcast and we all had to have COVID tests. We were, had to maintain social distancing. We had to have food. If we were going to have food delivered, it had to be in individual boxes. Each person picked up their own and had, we had to eat in shifts. We couldn't eat together. Um, and so, yeah, it was, but it was the start of the reopening process of how we can survive and keep people safe at the same time. It was, you know, now I live in Queens, New York, which was um, the epicenter of the outbreak. So when COVID hit here, we were probably the hardest hit in our community because the hospitals were overrun here to the point where um, they had um, makeshift morgues on the sidewalk, refrigerator trucks. They were turning people away from the ER and urgent care. They would not let you go into urgent care if you thought you had COVID because you could spread it by just walking in. They didn't, you know, we, I, I have pictures from the whole year. Um, every 20 minutes, uh, going past my house was an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, you heard the siren 24 seven for three months, every 20 minutes. Li- I mean, I'm, 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 sa- I'm saying approximately every 20, but literally it mm-hmm. was seemed like every 20 minutes, an ambulance was going past my house. Um, and then if you got out to go to the supermarket or go somewhere, you would see ambulances actually taking people out of 
houses and apartments or taking a body out of a house or apartment. So that was not fun. And every day that I would, every time I walked past the, uh, walk to the, um, um, the supermarket, I walked past the funeral home where my mother was and there was a refrigerator truck in that parking lot for three months. So it was like a bomb hit us. And, um, we went into, you know, everybody went into crisis mode. We had to pivot. You had to pivot on a dime and you had to, you know, do things remotely. Now you couldn't go to work. You had to shut things down. Theater shut down. Nursing home visits shut down. On uh, March 10th was the last time I saw my mom at the nursing home. But luckily, the uh, activities director was friendly with. She would she would uh, FaceTime me with my mom every single morning at 11 a.m. right up to the day before she died. So I still had that connection with her. Um, but the pandemic hit us, and it, we were blindsided. So. Yeah, that's amazing. That's, I mean, obviously we'll go into it a little bit more here sure. uh, later in the show, but we've come a long way, mm-hmm. you know, gratefully have come a long way since last year. And, and there's been so many things that have taken place since then and so much loss, which unfortunately you've had an immense amount of loss in your life and regard to this pandemic in particular. So um, let's start with where, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in a small town called uh, Marshall's Creek, Pennsylvania. Um, born and raised, uh, born in the local Pocono Hospital and Grill, as I call it, because it's so small. It's, you know, have a baby and have a burger. And um, so now it's, now it's, I don't know, it's like the hospital general, whatever they call it to make it sound bigger. But uh, so my family, uh, my great grandfather and my grandfather were looking for land. They were in New Jersey. My great grandfather's from Sicily. My grandfather is from Jersey City. And they found a plot of land on the top of a mountain in Pennsylvania. So they moved there, but my great grandfather had 13 children and each one of them and their family settled around him. So it was like this, this little microcosm of dysfunctionality of Italian people and Greek people living on the top of a mountain. And, um, so it got the derogatory nickname Ravioli Mountain because everyone was Italian. Everyone was related. And, um, so I kind of, uh, it took that and spun that um, to make it something more joyous. And I took the, the fun parts of Ravioli Mountain and wrote my, my cookbook. And um, so uh, even though it was crazy, it was dysfunctional, it was loud, a lot of breaking dishes. Um, you know, that's the way, you know, I, 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 I don't suggest it, but I've done it. Breaking dishes is actually quite it's quite healing. You know, when you want to just like get, get aggression out, just buy a set of old dishes and just smash them. But that's what most of my adult relatives did to, to deal with stress because they didn't have access to therapy. So they broke dishes. You know, so they that's, that's the Italian way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know about the Greek side, but that's definitely Italian. Yeah, yeah. And um, so that was, uh, that was, that was my upbringing. And, um, you know, there was always, there was always joy on the mountain, but there was always sorrow. There was always, you know, dysfunctionality. There was always loud behavior. Um, and not everybody was, you know, not everybody was on the same path. Not everybody had the same ideals. So it just became this, this, this like little bubble on the top of a mountain. And, um, it wasn't until I moved to New York that I realized that you could have a neighbor that wasn't a relative. So literally, you know, where, where, where we were at both sides of us, we had, you know, Uncle Billy on this side, grandma was on that side, across the street was Uncle Frankie, Aunt Jenny, you know, so it was like yeah. you, you were completely surrounded by, uh, by family. Uh, that's amazing. Do you have any brothers and sisters? I have one older brother and he lives in Florida now. 
So, but all still part of that huge family on top of the hill. Mm-hmm. That's a great place to come from, though. I mean, in reality, I realize it came from a derogatory perspective. But, you know, when you, I, I grew up in an Italian environment as well. And I can tell you, it also comes from love. You know, oh, yeah. that's the way they show love, believe it or not. Exactly. It's their way of saying, I love you. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's food, food and drink and family. And uh, yeah, it works this way. Yeah, and that's uh, what that's in my book, too. Like I, I took a lot of the stories uh, that could be told in a farcical nature. And they were experienced in a farcical nature. Um, but they're so ridiculous sometimes that I'm like, I can't believe this was actually true, but it's actually true. Um, so even the stories of the, the, the things that happened on the mountain before I was born, um, the stories my mother told me when she was in the emergency room before she got sick, um, I would sit there with her and I would write as she was telling me these stories, I would put them on my phone or if I had my computer with me, I would just just jot down everything that she was saying. Cause, and then I would also check out some of the stories with relatives and they would be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You were conceived on a beaver dam and your first words were <laughs> fucking reindeer. And, um, yeah, you know, so, <laughs> those, so, so, so when I would hear this, I'd be like, okay, I gotta, there's no way that there's no way that I can't write this down because if I'm laughing, it's going to make someone else laugh. It's also going to make them touch base with their, upbringing in their family because everybody has relatives like this they just you know regardless of what your upbringing whether it's italian greek uh, jewish no matter what you have these relatives in your midst and um they they they, you know everybody has their own ravioli mountain their own upbringing their own way of describing how they were born and raised and how they how they left that environment for something different well, I think it's a brilliant opportunity for you to kind of share with people the fact that what you just said, we all have family that sometimes we forget about or sometimes we put aside. And even though we grew up in that arena, we may have thought it differently. But when looking from the outside in, we realize that, wow, I missed that. Yeah. I mean, not everybody was conceived on a beaver dam, but I'm sure the people can really debate their parents had had ideas of where they were conceived. Uh, I'm afraid to ask my parents. They're both deceased, but I'm still afraid to ask. I don't ever think of my parents in a sexual situation. But, you know, it it just became this, this, and, 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 you know, my mother also, you know, when she, she had dementia, so, but she knew who I was and she just didn't know where the time period was. But when she would tell me these different stories and I would talk to different relatives, they're like, yeah, she told me that story too. And then I looked at our family home movies from the 1960s. And don't you know it? There's a camping trip on there in a log cabin and there's a lake and a beaver dam. <laughs> and I said, oh my God. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. <laughs> well, you know, whether it's true or not, it, you know, mm-hmm. as, as much of the story that was told to me and those stories, you know, this, the, the legend of Lucky the pig that my grandmother had this trained pig named Lucky. and He was the only male pig uh, in the barnyard because they, 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 lucky. yeah, exactly. He was the pimp. But he was also trained and he was also, he would let himself into the house was, and he would sit in front of the fireplace. Only lucky. No other animals were allowed. Not even the dogs were allowed in the house, but this pig would come into the house and lay in front of the, in front of the fireplace. And then there was one time my grandmother left the door unlocked, went to the supermarket and lucky got out of his pen, but also let out the 13 piglets that were just born. And they Holy followed God. him into the house. So he's asleep in front of the fireplace and these piglets are all through the house. 
They're, they managed to open the refrigerator. They opened all the all the, the cupboards. They're pulling out flour, molasses. She comes home. He's passed out in front of the fireplace. And there are 13 piglets running around covered in molasses and flour and oats and, and even sprinkles because they got into her sprinkle. They got into all of her cookie things. So she had like these pigs that were covered with glitter. I mean, it was just the, the story was hysterical. And I can it reminded me of the movie A Christmas Story and the movie Moonstruck because they're both told from family perspectives at different times, but the farcical nature of the way that they unfold is so ridiculous, but absolutely true. And they That's come amazing. from a place of, they come from, a, it comes from a place of joy, comes from a place of just, just love. And I always want to make sure that, you know, when I put something out there that, you know, if it makes somebody smile and laugh, that is job one, especially I've done, I've done stand up comedy before and I do vocal impressions. And one of the things that's absolute crack to me is hearing an audience laugh because of something you did, because of something you said, because of something you are telling them at that point. So for me, having someone open the book and read the story and start to laugh, that is pure joy to me. And that's the idea. Like the idea behind everything that I, that I discovered over the past year was that, um, yeah, I lost 20 people. Um, not going to say that that was easy. It was horrifying. Um, and then losing my mom because, um, you know, she was absolutely one of my closest relatives, the only person who I, um, you know, I talked to every single day to the day before she died, but I could look at her and look at her stories and yes, you're laughing through the tears, but you're laughing. And that's the only way we could get through this past year. Because if you stayed in that pit of despair, guess what? You're going to need a lot of therapy to get out of that. And I am just like, just scratched and peeled away one layer of the onion of my own, you know, dealing with the PTSD that comes along with dealing with this. But not having access to therapy over the year, writing this stuff down and being able to share it and start to share it with people in small increments and then put it all together into a book that I can share with the masses. I, it's like I said, it's, there's no joy greater than making an audience laugh. I, I, I can't tell you as a, I, I, in the circus, I did a, uh, a completely nonverbal clown number called sweeping up the spotlight. It's a very traditional old school clown act where the clown is sweeping the, the ring and he sees this spotlight on the floor. And as he starts to sweep, it moves away. And then there's ways that you play with that imagery without any words. And hearing the audience laugh was key because that's, it just feeds my soul. And I think that people need to remember, you have to laugh every day, no matter what, no matter how hard it is, you're walking through the flames, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, laugh. It's in the Bible. Um, I put it there. I read it. <laughs> no. Laughter is the best medicine. It is. It is. Yeah, I mean, it really it, is. It, it, it really, you know, there's a, I was on another podcast interview. I had worked with Tova Felchu. She's a, actress. She was on Walking Dead. But I trained her for a Broadway musical called Pippin. And she played a grandmother who has a flashback scene where she becomes a trapeze artist. And Tova came to the rehearsal prepared to learn the physical, but she has the actor's mind who has the 24-hour character in her mind. So she wanted to know like what, you know, she was telling this story. So I learned so much from her. But she, we were on a, uh, we had a we uh, had touch base on Richard Skipper's podcast um, interview, and um, she uh, 
she said that she had written a book about her mother this past year. And her mother's quote was laughter and chocolate every day. And I, you know, that there, there's nothing better than laughter and chocolate as far as I'm so with the New York accent. It, absolutely, absolutely. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> with a gravelly voice, <laughs> laughter and chocolate. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I took a class, a screenwriting class with Judd Apatow, actually. And um, when I had done that, everybody said, well, you're a cop. So write from that, be a, you know, write. Write as a cop. I said, I don't want to write as a cop. I want to write comedy. So I had to learn to to kind of twist, not twist around, but shift it to a comedic level in regard to um, my writing. Uh, from a comedic perspective, the, the Rush Hour, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the even the Lethal Weapon, actually, if you look at it, it's a lot of it's comedy. But it... It's people say, why don't you want to write? You could be, you could take your experiences and really put them down. It's like, I, but I like to laugh more. Mm-hmm. Over my career and what I experienced, what I went through, I don't want to relive that. No. I mean, after the, drama I left. Those, the drama of those situations can be extremely scary. Exactly. Uh, one of my, one of my odd jobs back in the day was I worked for the NYPD, actually. Um, I worked as an undercover fact finder. And what that meant is that I would go into different parts of town dressed in costume and try to find counterfeit products. Then I would let the team know where they were, and then the team would go in for a raid to, to retrieve those counterfeit products. But we literally had to think on our feet because there were times when we would be stuck in, an, in, a, in a... If there was a raid going down, people would shut the garage doors on their business, and you'd be stuck inside in costume, three feet away from somebody. So you had to be really good about chain. And I have red hair and I have white skin. I'm very recognizable. Even with a wig or mustache, I'm recognizable. So um, there were times that uh, that got pretty scary. I I didn't do it for very long because it was just not for me. Um, Plus, it also got very dangerous because the minute Mm -hmm. you, you know, because those people don't care. They're trying to make a living by selling counterfeit product. Um, But they don't, you know, you're in the way with them getting a fine and possibly arrested and possibly shut down. So they don't care if they can break your legs, they will. And so I just got a little bit intimidated by that part of it. And, um, you know, I, I backed away from that job after a while. But it, but in general, though, comedy is a science. And people, people need to understand that when you hear Joan Rivers, God rest her soul, Joan Rivers set up a joke, the way the punchline lands, it's, she had, it's science. And um, remember, there was an interview with her where she had this giant bookcase, uh, cards of jokes on them. Phyllis Diller had the same thing, actually. It was like all these cards and she would just reach in and pull one out. And it could have been, you know, it could have been a joke you've heard before or not, but she wrote them down and kept them organized in such a way. But it's science. It's, it's literally, this is the way you tell the story. This is the way you find the punchline. This is the way you, 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 you lead up to the, to the, to the joke. And it wasn't until I got in front of an audience and got a microphone to, to feel that spontaneity that I realized that, yes, I have spent a lot of time watching stand-up comedy, but when it comes to actually presenting it as this is a joke or this is, it's very different. And uh, with the impression stuff that I do too, um, that is, you have to be spot on with the sound of the timber of the person you're imitating. Otherwise it falls dead and the audience just, just doesn't care. And it has to be there has to be a setup that really leads them in to know that they could, they have permission to laugh. 
And um, so, so yeah, it's totally a science. And I, I did relearn it when I was writing too, because, you know, just telling you the story of Lucky the Pig, you know, that that's abbreviated. But, you know, the way you set it up, the way you tell the details in writing is so different than when we're talking in person. But, uh, you know, the, the way that those stories unfold, they're not the, the way that I wrote the book originally was each relative had their own chapter and their recipes. But then grandma had 40 recipes. My dad had five. Instead of doing it by relative, I did it as if you were coming to my house for a dinner and you were going to hear the stories that happened at, uh, uh, that happened on the mountain. So what do we have first in an Italian food, Italian, Italian meal? You have bread, you have dips, you have olive oil, you have tapenade. Then you have your salad and uh, now then you have your antipasto. And I had, um, I had so many aunts that were around my, around me, my mother's two sisters and then the great aunts that lived around me. So they were the queens of the antipasto platter. So I named that chapter Antipasto, A-U-N-T-I-E, because they were the kings of everything antipasto, these huge trays of deli meats and cheeses and roasted vegetables and roasted peppers and garlic and all that stuff that you, you know, and then salad. So if you were sitting down at a, a meal in my house, each chapter is the progression of a meal right down to the last one, which is desserts. And then I, I make a lot of infused alcohols. So I have my own lemon cello, orange cello, lime cello. Um, you can make, uh, you can make almost anything, um, into a infused vodka. My or, sister's going to love your book. Well, I make a great peanut butter chocolate martini. That's all infused. Peanut butter vodka is one of the best things I've ever tasted in my entire life. And uh, I had to put it in the book. So, um, and I love peanut butter <laughs> chocolate. So I created, I, yeah, I created this out of um, a dear friend of mine, Paul. Um, whenever he has cocktail parties at his house, he has all these infused alcohols. And, um, and so he kind of taught me how to do that. But I knew my grandmother made her own limoncello and things like that because that was always on the table. It was always like the, the, the imperative at the end. Um, so I got very crafty and very, very cool with the way that I make, you know, one thing that's in the fridge right now is ruby red grapefruit tequila. So that's, that's for a party wow. this weekend. And, um, you know, you can do almost anything with two cups of vodka and some zest, honestly. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's a, yeah. My sister, limoncello all the time. She went back to Italy when she married her. She's my half sister. Her, her main name is Belfiore. Mm -hmm. um, she went back to Sicily, or she went back to Rome with Roberto and learned how to cook from Roberto's relatives, his, grand, his mother, his grandmother, his aunts and everything. So she learned, and they went back every year and she learned new stuff. So when she came back here, yeah, I, I grew up with that food in that environment, in that atmosphere. Then, like I said earlier, when we were talking prior to us starting, we, all of Roberto's friends come out, the Giovanni, and we had the Sergio, and we had Renata, everybody, all, there was probably 20. Everybody with a vowel at the end of their name was there. Yes, <laughs> like 20, 20 families that yeah. moved into the same neighborhood, and that's exactly what we did. So I'm reliving memories with you now that I hadn't thought about in a really long time. So cooking, cooking with a cooking with a retired cop is your new exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. You know, and uh, here, you know, that's the other thing too is that when when you write a cookbook, you also you have to know the quantities. You have to know 
the options so that people with different dietary needs can change. Like if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you just take this the sausage and replace it with vegan sausage or Beyond Burger or whatever those things are. Um, but then when you get into the nitty gritty of it, you have to prepare every single thing that's in that book to make sure that A, you have a photograph of it, B, you know what goes into it and that it works. Then you share it with somebody, share the recipe with somebody. I did a lot of cooking live on Instagram and we would have a glass of wine and I would teach somebody how to make just basic marinara, my chicken rosemary, um, mushroom lasagna, um, my, my summer uh, barley salad I taught someone last year. All of these things were part of my journey because if you don't test the recipe out and you have a mistake, guess what? It's published. It, the mistake is there forever. Anybody looks at that recipe, tries to recreate it, they're going to hit that mistake unless they're already a cook and realize it. So I had to really hone my cooking skills. Like each week, I would pick one thing from the book, one, two, three, depending. Um, you know, and also we had the, the issue here in Queens where it took almost two hours to get in and out of a grocery store at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, there, we were in lines literally around the block waiting for almost two hours to get in for 30 minutes. And if you stayed past that 30 minutes, they would tell you, you have to go to the checkout right now. And, and then they would let 10 more people in. Um, it was, it was terrifying. So we were literally racing in, grabbing whatever we needed, get to the checkout and get out. And then washing everything down, wiping everything off when you brought it into your home. So, uh, you know, between laundry and and um, uh, uh, buying food would take an entire like five hours sometimes because you would have to wait outside. You don't know how long you're going to be. Then you have 30 minutes in, get through the checkout, get home, clean everything, put everything away, and then try to figure out what you want for dinner. Um, so it was it was definitely. Uh, a trying time. But during that time period, when things eased up, I started to cook more. And then I watched, I literally have the Food Network on all the time. And recipes that I see other people do, uh, it would remind me of something that my grandmother did that was simber, sim, 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 um, similar. Somebody called it a, uh, a timpani, but my grandmother always called it, always, always called it, she always called it a timbalo which I believe is drum. It looks, it's a, basically it's a baked pasta that you put in a springform pan and you cut it like a cake. Um, and this other person was, you know, they, they made a pie crust and put spaghetti in. It was totally like completely different, but yet it reminded me of something my grandmother used to make. It was Americanized. And, and, well, most pasta, most pasta was Americanized really. They don't have spaghetti and meatballs in Italy from what I understand. So, um, that's very much an American thing, but they do have meatballs and, um, so I, you know, so that, that really like sparked this, this interest in creating and recreating, um, my grandmother's, her, just, just her way of, uh, of presenting a meal. You know, the one thing that I, uh, when my grandmother died, there are things that I wanted from her home. And it was just that, just for me, just for me. And I, my mother inherited her house and I said, can I have the kitchen table? And she was like, take it. So I have the kitchen table that I learned how to make homemade pasta with my grandmother and I at this very kitchen table in the 1970s, early 70s, would be up all night making pasta. There would be a mound of flour. There would be eggs. There would be water. There would be oil, salt and pepper. Everything would just like be this mound of dough on the... But I have that table. 
And it was like, there are so many memories from sitting around that table when I was a child that I just won't part, you know, I'll never part with that. You get to relive them every every time. Every every time I sit down at that table and those chairs, I think, my God, I was like a toddler at this table. I learned, you know, one of the things that is a story of making homemade pasta in my book is my grandmother was my job to bring in firewood. And so at my grandmother's house, I would bring in a lot of wood overnight and make sure there was a lot of wood in the living room. She had a big fireplace and we would make these noodles in the kitchen on, in the dining room on that table. And then when the noodles were ready, she would pass them to me and I would walk into the dining room and I'd put two chairs together with a broom handle over them and drape the noodles over and then bank the fireplace with lots of wood so that it would stay really warm. And I would sleep on the couch in the living room and keep the fire going all night to dry the pasta. So the next day, the pasta would be dried. We'd make up bundles in either little baggies with ribbon, or she would take a jar of sauce from the pantry, tie the, a bag of pasta onto it with a ribbon, and that would be a holiday gift for somebody. Just in case you had somebody drop in that you weren't expecting, she had a gift for them. And so that's something that I did uh, also. I would, I, you know, if, I, if I, I would make fresh pasta, dry it, and then give people a jar of my sauce, and that, and that would be a present. Because here, I'm giving you a meal, you know, that kind of a thing. It comes from the heart. Exactly. And it's yeah, not, it's not, you know, I didn't go on Amazon and click, you know, add, you know, and exactly. have, I, I went and I spent hours making the sauce and then there would be a little card on it for people who wanted to uh, modify the sauce. If you, you know, to, if you want meat sauce, add this. If you want that, if you're vegan, add this. If you're vegetarian, add this. Um, and that became part of like, that also birthed um, more, more chapters in the book. Um, so the more I was going through this journey of memory, memory, memories, um, the more that the book unfolded and the more that the stories came back. And it wasn't the sad stories that were the ones that were sticking in my head, the most ridiculous stories. And I, you know, my grandma, I used to, I used to climb trees. That was my thing. I loved climbing trees. I mean, I, I ended up as a trapeze artist, so I have no fear of heights. So we had this big oak tree in the front of the house. My aunt Shirley lived across the street used to rat me out all the time because I'd go up and I'd climb the tree and I'd fall asleep in the tree. And she would call my mother and she's like, he's going to get electrocuted up there. Get him out of the goddamn tree. (laughs) And so my mother would, you know, scream out the door and I'd be like, oh shit, you know, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be asleep in a tree 30 feet off the ground. Um, But it was like that part of the dysfunctionality that I was surrounded by. That was my spirit trying to get away from it. And I, the higher and higher that I flew, the further away from that craziness, I, 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 I distanced myself. And now all I want to do is go back there, which is just, you know, what I've done in my mind because, you know, I don't, I don't have property there anymore. And none of my family has any, any stake in that part of town. But, um, you know, just those memories, it's so rich with my childhood memories that, you know, I, I just, I, I, I can't see it being anything but, you know, my, 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 my roots, that's where. Well, and our listeners can't see your face, but I, I can tell you have joy in your eye. You have, you have a uh, happy, you have a smile on your face and you can see it glow. You see a glow around you. So when you talk about these things. It, that's heartburn. I just. Heartburn. <laughs> or, or heartburn, one of the two. No, I, no. I was going to guess. One no. Of the two. <laughs> no, but that's the, you know. Everybody has that aunt. Everybody has that uncle that they related to. Everybody has that person who was their favorite relative that they couldn't wait to see. And I have, you know, I miss them so much because they were like, 
you know, they were the, the calm in the storm there, you know, my aunt Shirley, I love her death. She was just, you know, she was, you know, they were all loud, but she was just a, you know, she, she was a sweetheart at, you know, at heart, she was sweet. So yeah, that was her way of saying, I love you. Get him out of that fucking tree. Pardon my French, <laughs> you know, but, but it's a, it's a, that's the way that people say, I love you apparently. And, you know, my grandmother, when I told her I was going to school for theater, it's like, Oh my God, you know, that was her way of saying, why aren't you going to school for computers? You're going to make so much more money and be more successful. It's a shame that there's so many parents and grandparents out there that think that within the entertainment industry. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, when you think of the post-World War II families, the people that raised children during and around World War II, like my grandmother, they learned to live without. They had yeah. things taken away. They had to ration food. So you were taught that you need to have a trade. You need to be able to, you know, you need to, you need, if you're, if you're the next generation, don't, don't, don't do what I did, you know, but, or follow my lead and learn how to learn how to make pizza, learn how to do this, learn how to work in this industry that's booming. Now, if I had listened to my grandmother, I probably would be a very successful computer technician slash trapeze artist. But, um, I don't think so. I don't think that that would have fed my soul the way the arts does. And I think that, you know, I was always a creative child and I'm always going to be creative. And like I said, adding author to my multi-hyphenated list has been, um, you know, it's, it's a journey and it's an incredible journey because I never, I don't even like to write emails. I, you know, I always do my best editing after I hit send. You know, we all, you know, best editing ever after I hit send. Um, but, uh, with this, with this, you know, the, the way the pandemic hit, losing my mom, losing those relatives and those memories, you know, um, it just, they came flooding back. And I was like, this is divine intervention. One more thing before you go is sponsored in part by Superpass. Take your business online, create a website and an iOS and Google app designed specifically to instantly share your content and get paid for it. The tools you need to grow your online business Share your offline skills online with your own contact site. And finally, keeping everything in one place. Superpass allows you to build on your customer relationships. You keep 100% of your money. You get personal branding and it, it is cost effective. It's more than just a website. Get started with Superpass. Find the link in the show notes. This is a fantastic opportunity to have a Netflix style app with video, podcasts, audio, articles, blogs, Everything in one place, beautifully curated, all in the palm of your hand. Please check out Superpass. It's a brilliant opportunity to stay connected. And I'm not a religious person, but I really feel like this was a way that the universe was saying, do this now, because look at what's going on around you. You're surrounded by death and you're in your 50s and you're an artist. So you have a chance to make art in your living room. And then share it and make people laugh who may have suffered through some of the most horrific times. And that's all it's about for me. You know, I, it, hey, it would be wonderful if a project like this was a New York Times bestseller, but I know that that's not realistic thinking. Um, you know, I want to reach people who want to learn about my family and who want to just have that connection. And anyone who's lost anyone to dementia or COVID will have the same kind of experience and maybe share something with their families or 
create their chosen family and be able to feed them in their own way. And that's just all. That's just where it comes from. And that's important. I mean, again, especially this last year and a half, everybody has found a new um, value on life because it, it could be taken in a second. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of us know that already, um, that, it, that it can be taken in an instant in, in any form or anything, not just COVID, but mm -hmm. an accident, a heart attack, um, a cancer that was undiagnosed. Yep. There are so many times that life can be taken in an instant, and it's precious. And sometimes you have to stop and take a breath. And it's just like my podcast, the whole theme of it is one more thing. Yeah. There's always one more thing to say. There's always one more thing you should tell somebody. There's always one more thing before they walk out the door. Yeah. I love you. I need you. I miss you. I'm proud of you. Think about what you, what you're missing, what you are missing, your family. Think about your parents. Did I call my parents today? Did I call my kids? Did I call my grandparents, my aunt? That's what my one more thing before you go is. Think about it. Take the time. And you always have something more to say. You've done it in being able to share memories that I think can, um, can take somebody on a journey of your life, but they do it in such a way that they eat and they laugh and they drink and they enjoy life and they celebrate it. And I can remind them that there are there's more to life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 100% uh, nail on the head. Um, you know, if I, 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 the one thing I did that, that I do regret is I thought I had more time with my mom. I really did. I thought I would have more time with her because she was bouncing back so quickly from all the time she had been in the ER. Now, your um, mother was in the nursing home too, right? She was in a nursing home for five years. Yeah. So um, I thought I had more time. And then this thing just took her away like like that um you know and it was it it was shocking because i was like waiting for you know this this thing to blow over and then i'd go back to visiting her you know none of us knew what was what was ahead we had you know there were so many things going on politically there were so many things going on with the black lives matter movement and the protests and the city was just this ball of tension and fear and anger and, um, and, and through all, all of it, I was losing my mom. And then friends started to go one by one. And, you know, friend from college, friend from that I worked with for almost 30 years, another friend from Boy Scouts when I was a child, uh, who I was talking to up to the day he went into the, into the, uh, to be intubated. And then he never, he just never got, I came out of it. So it was those things were happening all while this, this dark cloud was looming. There was this very interesting um, exhibit at the Museum of New York City, and it was a timeline of COVID, of when it started, and where it was first in January, where the first rumblings of it, February, where we, we knew it was in the States, and then March through June was just this blur. And I was sick with COVID too, because my mother died on March 21st, March 23rd, 22nd, I woke up with 104 fever. And so I had it and I had it for a good solid six weeks. It was not going away. Um, took me a good two months before I could walk more than four blocks. And, uh, and then it took a good two months before I could walk 10 blocks. Um, my lungs just weren't repairing enough. I would get winded just doing the stairs. Then your muscle atrophy happens because you're not active. I'm an active person. 
Um, so then there's this, this, this wave of depression that hits you and that the only way I could climb out of that were connecting with these stories, connecting with the laughter, remembering the laughter and remembering that you have to laugh every day. And that was really when I started to just be like my head cleared. Uh, but then the book started to come to me in ways that, like I said, I think it was, di- I can only describe it as divine intervention because we were forced to work from home. We were forced to work from our living room. So what more can you do in your living room except watch Netflix and use your computer? Or even like my, my cell phone. I used my cell phone to write a lot of the chapters. Um, I would auto-dictate it. You have to be careful with auto-dictation because it has a sense of humor. So you do have to edit it before you send it to yourself to make sure you know what you were saying. Or to anybody else. I, yeah. I found that out myself. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we uh, we all have that that one moment where we, we, we hit send and then we're like, what was I... Tr- Wait a minute. What did I really mean? You yeah, know? I got a few. I got a few texts back from my daughter saying, "This is inappropriate for your daughter, Dad." <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, I. I um, there, there are several. There are several just like ridiculous things that, I, and that's the other thing. Once you've, once you've sent it to yourself, and you go back in later. If your thought process is not on that story or the the progression of that story, you forget that line, whatever you were supposed to say, whatever you wanted to say at that time. So that's why it's very important. But it's an easy way to get the story in a raw form so that you can actually structure it in a way that's, that's better for the, the, the reader. And, and that's, you know, where I, uh, like I said, I kind of went to college in, in a, in a, in a nine month period and learned Basics of right. I also have a very, very good friend who lives around the corner. Um, and we reconnected. We've known each other for almost 10 years, but we never really saw each other. And we live around the corner from each other. But we, we, she's an author and she was sort of like my mentor. And we would have Sunday, Sunday, uh, di- Sunday, um, socially distant cocktails in my garage. I would open up the garage door. I'd set two lawn chairs six feet apart with little tables. And then I would make uh, whatever infused vodka I was making or alcohol I was making, I would make the cocktail du jour. Um, I was testing my ram- my grandmother's limoncello uh, tiramisu. So that was one of the things we would work, we would share. And then we just got to talk and we got to share things. And then through the process, like I said, she became my mentor and she sort of like helped me all the way through the whole book. So I, um, I just, I, I, I can't thank the world enough for having that chance to make those connections. I like it when the world, the universe presents us with opportunities that we can grow, we can learn, we can heal, and we can move forward in a very positive way and help others in the same instance. Um, I'm looking forward to this book. I know it's not come out yet, but I am looking forward to it. From what I've, I've number one, our conversations into you know what you've told me about it prior to this, your journey, especially through losing so many people, um, it's got to have a profound effect on you. I mean, some of us have lost people throughout our lives, but in in your instance, you lost a number of them within a very short period of time. Um, I know that you lost your mother, you lost a few relatives, and then so many friends. Yeah. Like you said, or 20 total earlier. Yeah, it was three relatives and 17 friends. Um, even as recent, the last two were, um, God, uh, were, were, it was in January. In January, February, there were two more. And yeah, to COVID, they both, you know, 
identical twins as well, brothers in their fifties. And, uh, yeah, one, they both caught it and one died. And then two weeks later, the other, you just never know. And, um, like, like you said, it was all, you, you know, there's, it's one thing to lose relatives. It's one thing to lose people, but so many in such a short period of time has an effect on you because, you know, and I, uh, there, one thing that I, that was going through my brain as I was fighting COVID myself was listening to the ambulances past my door and wonder which one is going to be for me. Either, I, you know, either I have, have to go to the hospital or, uh, or they're going to pick me up and take me to a funeral home, you know, and that was one of the scariest times. And when I thought that in my brain, that was when, again, divine intervention, a dear, another dear friend, my friend Phoenix, she noticed that I was vague booking on Facebook. And I don't, you know, I don't really like to share a lot on Facebook as far as like my personal stuff that I'm going through. Um, but I was, um, she, she kind of was like, I know your mom just passed, but are you okay? Something else is up. And I said, yeah, I, I have COVID. Um, it's pretty much, I don't, you know, she said, well, did you get tested? I said, no, I there are no tests available and no one will let you into an ER or an emergent or an urgent care. But I have all the symptoms. I tried my, my GP tried, tried Tamiflu, nothing happened. It's all the symptoms point to COVID. So, and it was proven later I, in August of that year, uh, I went and I got my antibody test and yes, indeed, I had, I had all the antibodies, but my, my friend Phoenix, she said, what's your address? And I gave her my mailing address next day, express mail, this box arrived and it was all liquid, um, herbal remedies and tinctures and things to boost the immune system. There was a thing called fire cider and there was an immunity booster. There was another, um, uh, uh, cough syrup made of elderberry, uh, elderberries and, uh, clove. And these are all natural things from an organic farm that she sent me. And you know, within three days of starting them, my fevers got less, my cough got less. I started to breathe freer. The headaches were gone. Um, and then within a week, I was basically symptom free. And, uh, you know, whether or not those were placebos or the virus was working its way out, something really helped my, um, immune system kick into gear because that's when I really started to feel like I had a, um, uh, like, like my, 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 my system was resetting. Um, and, you know, divine intervention. I mean, whatever you believe in, I'm a Buddhist, but I was raised strict Roman Catholic. And sometimes we relate, you know, but the, there's a, there's a song also that I've had, uh, on my playlist for long. It's called if I were brave. And the line is, if I refuse to listen to the voice of fear with a voice of courage, whisper in my ear. And I snapped out of that depression and I just went, changed completely in my trajectory and my focus. And I started to, you know, started to feel better. I started to connect better. I started to laugh more. Then in June, I did a stand-up comic uh, gig on Zoom, got paid for it. I did a vocal impression gig and got paid for it. Um, on, all on my computer, you know, and, and people were, you know, were, you can't really there's nothing that compares to a live audience. I will tell you when you do jokes on zoom, it's like crickets, crickets, but then you see people chuckling 
you can't hear them, but you see them. And you're like, okay, I guess that's, that's the same thing. Um, but you know, that again, it's like crack to me because I knew I was helping people and I was doing that this little bit of humor, this little bit of, of laughter that was bringing me, was in these people's lives. I was, I was affecting them in a positive way. And again, there is nothing more addictive than that to me. Uh, uh, I, I will never be a drug addict, but I'm an, I, I'm definitely a, a laugh addict because it's, it's laugh addict is good. Yeah. Laugh, a laugh addict will not put you in rehab. No, absolutely not. So you, couple of things before we before we leave. You're the author of two books, as we said earlier. The one of them is Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir of, in food. And then the next one is Shit My Mama Says. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, it's called Shit My Mama Says. Um, so when mom, mom had dementia, so when she went into the nursing home, um, I started to chronicle, I started to write down her little catchphrases as they became, uh, you know, she would either call me and leave me a message or we'd be sitting there and she would have something to say about a nurse or she had a fight or she was going to see, they were taking them to see Broadway shows. And so she always had some kind of a funny outlook about life. And so I, in dealing with uh, a relative and a parent who has dementia, I would put it on Facebook and people would laugh. And so it got the hashtag shit. My mama says 2015, 2016, etc. Even on the day that she died, I put her, her quote about death was, was, uh, very, a little vulgar, but I was like, Mary Lou on, on death, shit my mama says. And, um, so I put it, I took that and I made a book of quotes. And it's like when, when you go to the card store and, or, and you, or, or like a Hallmark store and at the checkout, there's this little book and they have like, you know, quotes about, uh, daily life yoga quotes and things. And the cover of the book is literally my mother giving the finger to the nurse and it says, hashtag shit my mama says. And it's just a way for people who've dealt with loss, who've dealt with dementia, who've dealt with COVID to connect anyone who has a grandmother, grandfather, or relative with dementia knows that they say some fucked up shit. They say some crazy stuff that just rambles out of their mind. And my mother always, you know, her coping mechanism is obviously one that I have uh, embodied was laughter. When she was in a stressful situation, she would try to make her, she would try to make herself laugh. Or if she knew that my brother and I were sad or some, you know, like a dog or an animal died, she would do something to make us laugh. She would probably be a stand-up comic if she wasn't anything else in her life, if she had the encouragement that, that, that you know, to do so. But I remember all through the late seventies, we had every stand-up comic album on vinyl, even in the eighties when all the VHS tapes started to come out with Whoopi Goldberg and, uh, Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, um, George Carlin, Louis Anderson, Joan Rivers, you know, they were, they were constant. So there was always laughter and there was always in the back of my mind feeding the science of humor. And, you know, those, that was my training ground. And also it was just her, her coping mechanism, even in the nursing home when she was mad, I would try to make her laugh. She would try to make me laugh. So yeah. Uh, shit. My mama says will probably be the out first and, um, her funeral and, um, ash burial will be August. So I'm hoping to have it out, um, to gift to my relatives who come to the memorial and also for sale for anybody who wants to buy it. And then the, Cookbook is called Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food. 
and um, they'll both be on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and um, um, but I'm pub- I'm self publishing, so I'm in editing hell right now, and uh, that's the hardest part of any um, any writer's uh, journey is going through it and going through it again and then going through it again. And I've got to tell you, I've had so many incarnations of both books. Um, but finally, I feel like the products that I'm going to put out are going to be, be really fun for people to, to check out. I'm looking forward to both of them. And I'll have links to those when you get them up. Please provide them to Thank me. You. Um, send them to me and I'll make sure they get put in the show notes sure. uh, post. Uh, a couple things. Usually I ask, do you have any advice for others that are going through the same thing that you have gone through? Well, you got to laugh. You got to find a way to laugh no matter what. Make yourself laugh. But rent it. Rent it. Find a funny movie. Find a comedy. Go, you know, listen to stand-up comedy. Find something to laugh. Force yourself to do that. If you stay in that pit of despair, it only gets darker. It only gets deeper. Um, if you start to swim and get yourself out of it, you can get through anything. Even with extreme loss, you can still find a path to not only make yourself comfortable and make yourself laugh, but to make others laugh. And that's that, that's my philosophy. Laughter and chocolate every day. That and chocolate. <laughs> and this is one more thing before you go. Typically, I ask you if you have anything else you want to say before you, we leave, but can you leave us with maybe some impressions? Oh, God. Uh, you Let's know, I usually, warm, I usually warm up my voice for this, but uh, let, um, uh, let me see. Earth the kids. She's here. There's Earth. And then um, Eric Cartman from South Park here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Seriously, you guys. And then Elvis, Elvis Presley's in there too. Um, uh-huh. um and then there's Goofy. <laughs> he sounds just like Elvis. Let's see. I, uh, you put me on the spot. Uh, I have 50 voices and they're in my head. Uh, Hermit the Frog here coming to you live from Astoria Boulevard in Astoria, New York. Yeah, there's a few. <laughs> this works. They're more, they're more fun when you hear the song. Uh, I do the song Let It Go from Frozen and I throw, and it's, it's sung by, 14 different characters. So it's actually kind of fun. And that's, again, makes people laugh. That's all. <laughs> Have to leave them laughing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Bobby, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been an amazing journey. Thank you for the stories. Oh, thank thank you. you from the stories from a personal level. Uh, I, I, I really kind of, uh, I, I'm not kind of, I do uh, resonate with many of them. So I appreciate you and for what you're doing. And thank you for coming through COVID because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be having this conversation. No, no, we wouldn't. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.